Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. Jim, what's our topic today? We're back with part two of General Alfred Iverson and the attack and defense of Oak Ridge. Now, last time we gave you a deep dive on General Iverson and his background. We touched on some of his earlier campaigns. We brought Robert Rhodes' division basically into Carlisle on the eve of the Battle of Gettysburg. And so today we're going to pick up with what we think is a fascinating story. We've still got Iverson's Tar Heels unhappy to be, you know, led by a Georgian here on July 1st. And we're going to go right to the battlefield and we will pick up with the combat and the charge itself. So part two of Iverson's Brigade at Gettysburg coming up after I think we do a little bit of brief housekeeping. And before we get into the housekeeping, I just want to point out that Jim and I are doing this as individuals. We are not speaking for anyone other than ourselves, and in no means are we speaking for any organization. So even though we happen to be licensed battlefield guides, we are not speaking for any organizations outside of this. Just want to make that clear in case anybody has any concerns or confusion. You know, it says something that you've arrived when you guys start doing disclaimers in your episodes. Well, you know, you know, look, if people think I'm too touchy, for example, or if we're doing too much Dan Sickles or too much North Carolina history, we are doing what we want to do. And hopefully you guys are along for the ride. But yes, we do not speak on behalf of any organization whatsoever that we may or may not be affiliated with in our personal and professional lives. So with that said, I think we have a sponsor we would like to thank for hosting us as we once again record. We would indeed. Once again, we are recording from Getty's Gear at 777 Baltimore Street, literally overlooking Cemetery Hill here at Gettysburg. Now, Getty's Gear's philosophy is simple. They want to produce high-quality products at reasonable prices with exceptional customer service. So they have all kinds of stuff. They have Gettysburg cigars, Gettysburg coffee, pottery, apparel, accessories, dog treats, home decor, and... As I like to say, Eric, they have something for the ladies. So if visiting Gettysburg, stop by and see us at their retail location located 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village, home of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Or give them a call at 717-334-3747. Getty's Gear, history with a sense of style. And we want to thank them once again for letting us record here. And we should note, stop by to see the shrine that they have erected to us and the show. Yeah, this is impressive. I was overwhelmed with emotion when I saw this. We'll have to uh, uh, at least post a photo of it on social media so people can can see the the monument to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast that without any solicitation from us whatsoever, our friends at Getty's Gear have elected to erect on our behalf. And we want to thank them for that. And just so everyone's clear, there was no misappropriation of monument money that went into this. Exactly. There's no. We can already see, oh, they've got a monument. They're going to do a Sickles and, you know. Yeah, there's no intent to put a Sickles bust in here, but the money goes missing. Nothing like that. We wouldn't do stuff like that. But in all seriousness, we do want to thank them for opening their doors to allow us to record. These are still very challenging times to find recording space, so they have been a tremendous help. Frankly, without them, Season 3 may not have come together. So oh. we want to just, that's how that's important how critical. this is. 
Um, and we want to thank, you know, all of the sponsors we've had up to this oh, point. Yeah. We, you know, the outpouring of support that we've had, not just from our listeners, but from our sponsors has just been overwhelming. And without them and without you guys, we couldn't do this. Well, and now as we get into season three, I know we've had some private inquiries, personal inquiries from people looking to sponsor an episode. And we are now again accepting sponsorships as we start to record again. So if you are interested in sponsoring an episode of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, as many have during our first two seasons, or if you're just interested in connecting with us in general on social media, Eric, where's the best place? for people to get a hold of us. A couple ways you can do that. You can find us on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, or you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. So certainly reach out. We have had some folks also ask, you know, how can they support the show? And we're going to look at some ways to do that, I think, in the future that we haven't fully worked out just yet, but we're going to have some things coming up pretty soon. But for right now, the best way you can help out the show is write us a review. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just five, ten minutes, just take some time. We greatly appreciate it. That is what has helped us get where we are as a show is by people reading reviews from listeners like you. That's the best way for them to get a sense of the show. It's not just us saying that we think we have a good show. It's others saying that. So those of you that have taken the time to write those yeah. reviews, we greatly appreciate it. And if you haven't had a chance to do so, we hope you find some spare time here or there. Uh, you might write something up for us. So we yeah. certainly appreciate it. Yeah. And so, again, you know, this is free content. Eric and I, throughout Season 3, are going to continue to just do this for free for you. And we do it for fun. The Battle of Gettysburg is a topic that we are both passionate about. And it's something that we enjoy talking about. And we hope you do as well. So if you could just take a couple minutes to write a positive review, we appreciate that. So thank you again for all of your support, all of your listenership. And again, onward to uh, Season 3. Let's get to it. It's now July 1st here at Gettysburg. Robert Rhodes and his division are approaching the field. Included in Rhodes' division is the North Carolina Brigade under Alfred Iverson. Some might say the troubled North Carolina Brigade of Alfred Iverson. Yeah. So let's pick up the story here in the morning of July 1st and follow Iverson and his brigade through really the day that they are the most known for in the entire war. Yeah, so remember, is Richard Ewell in the Second Corps, of which Robert Rhodes, Alfred Iverson are all part of, remember, is they were basically pulling back from the Harrisburg area, pulling back from the uh, Carlisle area. Ewell had received orders from General Lee to proceed to Cashtown or Gettysburg, as circumstances might dictate, and a note also from General Hill saying that he was at Cashtown. But as the, as the division in the Second Corps started to approach Gettysburg, Ewell received further notice from General Hill that Hill was advancing upon Gettysburg, and as a result of that, Ewell turned the head of Rhodes' column towards Gettysburg by what is basically today known as the Biglerville-Carlisle Road. So again, the head of Rhodes' column is basically Alfred Iverson's brigade. Now, there's going to be skirmishers and such out in front, and we're going to talk about that, but let me stick with Ewell for a moment. Ewell wrote, quote, I notified the general commanding of my movements and was informed by him that in case we found the enemy's force very large, he, meaning General Lee, did not want a general engagement brought on until the rest of the army came up. So remember, folks, you still have basically this constraint operating against how Ewell and Rhodes are going to or should operate when they arrive at Gettysburg. Now, as they come in towards Gettysburg, obviously, 
you know, as we said, morning, early afternoon of July 1st, boom, boom, boom. You can start to hear the sounds of combat. You can see the smoke and the dust on the horizon. And Rhodes' division is going to stop around a piece of high ground north of Gettysburg today that we often refer to as Keckler's Hill. And what that hill is today is it is north of Oak Hill. So we're not on Oak Hill yet, but at Keckler's Hill, the Biglerville Road and the Hare Ridge Road kind of split off and the Hare Ridge Road will actually kind of work its way around kind of the the almost the western slope if you will of of Oak Hill. So we come to this critical intersection, General Roads can see combat occurring at Gettysburg. And I should note if you are ever heading north or south on today what's Route 34, the Carlisle Road, you'll actually see a Pennsylvania State Historic Commission sign noting that Robert Rhodes made the turn here. So if you need kind of a landmark, yeah. you know, we sort of talked about this all the way back in season one with our what if Jackson was at Gettysburg looking at Yule. Yule's decision making to turn two divisions towards Gettysburg mm-hmm. on July 1st is a critical moment. Yule's arrival, in my opinion, is what means the battle is going to continue on July 1st. If Yule doesn't show up from the north, I don't know if we have a battle in the afternoon. Maybe we have both sides kind of staring at each other, this sort of tense moment, but I don't think there would have been any inclination from Lee necessarily to push things unless he sees he has the advantage that Ewell's going to bring him on July 1st. Pick up what Rhodes says in his OR. You know, likewise, again, they hear that Hill's Corps is moving upon Gettysburg, and as Rhodes writes in his OR, quote, When within four miles of the town, to my surprise, the presence of the enemy there in force was announced by the sound of a sharp cannonade, and instant preparations for battle were made. So what's happening, folks, is Rhodes and Iverson are approaching from the north. They're going to bump into initially Union cavalry vedettes from Colonel Thomas Devin's brigade north of the town. And Eric... We have our first JNO Buford report of season three, because I think we've made a personal commitment to our fans to try to involve Buford a little bit more in the program this year. Yes, but you know, just wait. Soon we get hit with the allegations of onslaught of Buford. Will that happen? Hmm, I, I want, I want, I think, you know, I think pu- people just love Buford so much. I can't possibly imagine running into any criticism for too much Buford. All kidding aside, though. <laughs> yeah, where are we going with this? What this shows is the actions of Rhodes' division is a lot more intricate than simply they show up on Oak Hill oh, yeah, yeah. and they attack. Yep. They are going to have skirmishing as far north as Kettler's Hill, involving right. Alfred Iverson's brigade. Right. They're going to have skirmishing on Oak Hill itself. Around so, the, the Cobean farm. Yeah, you know, so you've got skirmishing all over this area that's going to alert Rhodes and then, of course, by default, Richard Ewell, that there is a Union presence in their front. Yeah. Now, the question will be at this point, what is the nature of this presence? How many are there? And where exactly is it in their front? So at this point, we know that it's cavalry vedats. And I think for the most part, don't get me wrong, there's skirmishing. But I think for the most part, Devin's vedettes are pushed back, back towards the town of Gettysburg fairly easily, all things considered. But again, what part of what this is going to do is it's going to require roads to send forth some sharpshooters, Major Eugene Blackford's sharpshooters of the 5th Alabama, in part to deal with the uh, the troublesome 
horsemen. Now, as the Confederates continue their approach, then Brigadier General George Doles, again with Blackford skirmishers, are going to kind of fan out off the Carlisle Road, kind of fan out to the left. Doles' brigade is going to be to the left. Edward O'Neill is going to be in the center. And then last but not least, our man, Brigadier General Alfred Iverson's brigade, is going to kind of veer off to the Confederate right. And our intent today is not to really go into a deep dive with all of Rhodes' division, but we're telling you this stuff because obviously a lot of these particular deployments are going to be tied into the ultimate fate of Iverson's brigade. Absolutely. Really, Rhodes on July 1st, or Rhodes at this battle, I think would make an excellent episode. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So we're not going to kind of get, get too bogged down to that. And also, one of the things that might confuse listeners, and I think confuses students of the battle, is depending on which source you use in terms of maps. They're in the general ballpark, but you're going to see some little changes here and there. We're not going to get wrapped up on, okay, where exactly is Alfred Iverson's mm-hmm. flank at this point? Right. That's just... Frankly, we can't tell you that with any certainty. Right. So just be aware that you know you may see some differences in books you look at and other map sources. Generally speaking, this is the arrangement that they're going to be in on July 1st. Yeah, I totally agree. So again, Iverson is coming in here with the 5th North Carolina, the 12th North Carolina, his old regiment, the 20th North Carolina, and then the 23rd North Carolina, which, you know, depending on which order of battle you go for, is about 1,385 men, give or take. So Iverson's brigade, as I said, is going to kind of veer off to the Confederate right. So as they're coming from the north in towards Gettysburg, imagine them kind of veering off to the west around Oak Hill and are going to kind of come around to the western side of Oak Hill. I do think initially Rhodes' biggest concern, though, is what's going on with Doles and O'Neill. Because not only have you got these cavalry vedettes that you got to push back, but there's also going to be concerns about a gap between Doles' right and O'Neill's left. So now you got to kind of deal with that from Rhodes' perspective to make sure that these two brigades don't get too separated, not only as they deal with the cavalry vedettes, but what they can see is approaching Union troops coming through the town of Gettysburg, which we know today to be reinforcements from the 11th Corps. Yeah, Rhodes has a tough spot right now. And it's not just the appearance of the 11th Corps, but there's some evidence that even skirmishers of John Robinson's division are moving out at this point. So what he's seeing is I've got a threat to my front, but I've also got a threat developing on my flank. So the question is, how do I best handle this? And I think Rhodes does make the right call in detaching doles to really be the force that's going to protect the flank. Mm -hmm. I think in combat effectiveness and leadership, Doles is probably the best brigade in the division. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Ramser has a very good brigade, but it's very undersized right now. And it's also suffering heavily from losses at Chancellorsville. So it's the right call in moving Doles out there. What we're going to see, though, is how Rhodes is going to interpret this threat. And I think he soon moves from seeing a sense of I'm being threatened to I may have an opportunity here to put my forces between these two approaching Union troops and possibly gain an advantage from them. And in fact, you know, Rhodes is going to say, finding that the enemy was rash enough to come Mm -hmm. out from the woods to attack me, I determined to meet him when he got to the foot of the hill I occupied. So what he's meaning by that is he's seen the First Corps. So keep that in mind that they're seeing the First Corps. So often we hear that Iverson gets completely ambushed or surprised that they didn't know they're there. They know they're there. It's just the question of where exactly are they 
in that area to their front. Rhodes adds in his report that upon arriving on the field, even before he sees these guys coming out to meet him, he, re- he realizes, quote, I could strike the force of the enemy with which General Hill's troops were engaged upon the flank. Those are the First Corps troops, the Union Army First Corps troops that Eric mentioned. So you've got the remnants of the First Corps, Wadsworth's division, basically over on what today we would consider to be Oak Ridge, facing to the west, confronting Hill's troops who are still coming in from the west. So you've got potentially a great opportunity for Rhodes and Ewell here to come in and strike the first corps in the right flank. So Rhodes has got that opportunity to do it. But what Rhodes, again, is not going to be aware of as Robinson's first corps union division is coming onto the field. Some of these guys on Oak Ridge are going to get reinforced by Brigadier General Henry Baxter's brigade of Robinson's division. So as we like to say on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, folks, it's a very fluid situation. We've got Rhodes making his deployments. We've got Rhodes feeling threats on his front and his left. We've got Robinson behind the Union lines bringing up reinforcements onto Oak Ridge. Very fluid. Eric, dare I say there's a lot to unpack here. Absolutely. And with Rhodes, I think we have to differentiate what Rhodes wants to do and what's actually going to happen. Rhodes is viewing, in his mind, there is some gap between the appearing 11th Corps and the 1st Corps. So the idea is that potentially Doles and O'Neill will deal with the threat to the flank. Well, Iverson and Daniel move towards the open Union flank they mm-hmm. think is in their front. Right. We then have Stephen Ramser in reserve. We've got Thomas Carter's batteries basically going into action, engaging both the 1st Corps and the 11th Corps. That's what Rhodes, I think, is looking for. And his initial deployment is meant to, to deal with that. Right. As we're going to see, the situation is going to change drastically so that it's not what Rhodes anticipated. Now, we should also add there's a bit of a gap in time from when Rhodes arrives on Oak Hill. I wanted to talk about that. When they actually engage. I think sometimes there's a sense this is this very rapid. They arrive and boom, they go right into it. By some accounts, there's two hours, maybe even at a minimum hour and a half going on before this attack is made. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about that. So generally speaking, we typically accredit roads with arriving about noon. That's, you know, that tends to be the time that we kind of give it. And there's a lull on the battlefield at that time, just sort of by happenstance, because you've got First Corps troops reforming on Oak Ridge. You've got all these reinforcements. You've got the 11th Corps coming onto the field. And so what I always say is, you know, if you read... Ewell's report and you read Rhodes' report at face value, they've been given this great gift. They've been given this opportunity to come in and basically occupy a hill on the enemy's flag. And, you know, that sounds great, but there's also tactical challenges, and I would kind of summarize those. You know, and this is why I always tell people, man, you got to get out and walk the ground. And I think the fighting on Oak Hill, the fighting at Oak Ridge, all of that is a perfect example of that. But as Eric alluded to, and I'm going to summarize, basically now they're going to have to move Iverson and then later Daniel and later Ramsour by the right to the west in order to strike the enemy position. So now, you know, we've been worried about this gap between Doles and O'Neill, but by moving Iverson to the right and to the west, I think you've now got a big gap between O'Neill's right and Iverson's left. 
that's going to be a problem. And so in doing so, they run the risk of exposing and overextending themselves to the arriving 11th Corps, who, as we said, are going to create the appearance of quote-unquote attacking Rhodes' left. And last but not least, although it's not totally germane to what we talk about with Iverson today, although Oak Hill is wooded, there's going to be a surprising lack of cover to deploy the artillery. And I think what's going to happen, in addition to casualties, and I think federal batteries and federal counter-battery fire really causing some problems with O'Neill, I think the deployment of the batteries is also, in my view, going to occupy a lot of Rhodes' time and maybe not as much thought going into guys like Iverson and helping to coordinate their attack. So it's a great gift here, but there's a lot of problems too. Challenges. And I think for our super fans that have had the chance to be on the field with us, and what a lovely day that was. That was a lovely day. And I think they got a sense of, wow, it doesn't appear what we think it appears. You know, we went to some places where people said, we've never stood here before. Wow, look what you can't see here. So I just want to echo what Jim says. The best way to understand this attack is you have to get out on the field and you can't just stand at kind of the nice view sheds that you have on Oak Hill. There's some wonderful spots, but Mm. there's also some terrible spots to try to view things from, too, which is where Iverson and his men are going to be. They're in one of the worst spots to see what's happening. Totally agree. And I think this is part of the problem because people look at this attack and how this attack unfolds and they say, how could they not see Union troops on Oak Ridge? How could they not see Union troops behind the stone wall? It's because all of us are used to going up to Oak Hill, standing at the Peace Light Memorial or nearby, which is a fantastic view of the Union position. But if you look at Doles and especially O'Neill, you know, where those guys are coming in, you don't have anywhere near that vantage point. And as we saw when we did our very special Halloween tour of Iverson's Pits, when you loop around to kind of the western side of Oak Hill and we stood about where we think Iverson deployed, kind of an intervening, you know, little ridge line there basically would have blocked the view that Iverson's men would have had to Oak Ridge. And I think when you get out and you see this stuff, you have a greater appreciation for, and I'm making air quotes here, they were why they were quote unquote surprised by Union forces up. And also the War Department markers do not do us any favors. If you're facing the peace light, the Iverson Brigade marker is to the right of that. Yeah. So you would assume that's where the brigade is, but the brigade is nowhere near that. It's on the opposite side of the peace light. So when you actually go to where Iverson's brigade was, it really changes your vantage point. And it also, I think, begins to show you the gap that's going to be developing between Iverson and O'Neill. They're right. not, if you look exactly. at it based on the markers, you think, oh, well, Iverson and O'Neill are right by each other. Not so fast, my friend, when you look at that. When you get out there and actually see, there's a difference between where the markers are and where the troops actually are. And that's why I always caution visitors to the field and visitors I have on tours, take the markers and monuments with a grain of salt. They're not meant to be a 100% accurate interpretive depiction of where these troops are. Right. And so as I I always say, moving Iverson in that direction opens up this gap between Iverson and O'Neill. Let me just for a minute, though, just to kind of summarize who these guys are facing, too, because I just want to make sure we've got at least a general sense of the threat from the Union forces down below. So we've got elements of Stone's Brigade, Union Army I'm talking about now, element of Roy Stone's Brigade, 143rd, 149th PA, changing front down near the McPherson Barns. So you've got federal troops down along the Chambersburg Pike, 
potentially threatening Iverson's right flank when he gets in motion. So that's going to be a problem. And that's, also you would have been able to see those troops. And you would have been able to see them. At General Wadsworth's order, Cutler's 1st Corps Brigade had reestablished their line in what we often refer to as Sheeds Woods. Sometimes we call it Railroad Woods on Oak Ridge. If those of you are familiar with Gettysburg, kind of it's the woodlot kind of in front of the Double Bay Inn today. So they're reforming there, but now they're going to have some vulnerability to Carter's artillery fire from Oak Hill. As we said, lead elements of the 11th Corps are arriving to form in line on the right of the 1st Corps. But the one I want to touch on is Robinson's 2nd Division. So the 1st Corps 2nd Division under Brigadier General Robinson is massing near the seminary when Robinson sent the 11th PA and the 97th New York of Baxter's Brigade north to what we call Oak Ridge to basically not only shore up Cutler's right flank, but to try to close this gap between the 1st Corps and the 11th Corps. So make a mental note about Baxter. Baxter's guys are the ones who are going to go into action against Iverson. So you've got all of that going on. You're going to have other units coming forward. The 11th PA is going to push forward skirmishers. I think Rhodes is going to see some of these guys moving forward and feel like there's a little bit of a threat. And then eventually just General Baxter. And I love it. When do you ever get to talk about Brigadier General Henry Baxter on a battlefield tour? Come on, never. never. Nobody ever asks you about it. But General Baxter will then lead his remaining regiments toward Oak Ridge, and the majority of the regiments... I think will initially start by facing north. Now, again, there's some controversy about this, but I think they start by facing north. So, guys, as you get into 1 o'clock, 1.30, finally 2 o'clock, you've now got Baxter's Brigade deployed on Oak Ridge to Cutler's right as Rhodes seems to be finally ready to get his infantry into motion. And what we see with Rhodes, maybe one of the explanations of why it takes so long, is that he is still relatively new to division. Right. It's not easy to move approximately 7,000 men to get them where they need to do. You just don't snap your fingers. And also, they are probably aware of what has happened in the morning. We can't be too aggressive because who knows what we're going to run into. Think about what happened to Henry Heath's division. So I think there's a challenge of you need to put your division in the best position to either lash out at the enemy or to defend. But you also have to be cognizant of the fact that you do not know where all the pieces are. So you cannot be overly aggressive and put your division in a really rough spot. Well, and the other thing, too, and we glossed over a little bit in our deployments, but again, with Carter's battalion, the division artillery being deployed, on and around Oak Hill, clearly that takes some time as well. And what I think, especially in Iverson's case, Iverson ultimately seems to be positioned to support one of the batteries. So not only do you have, you know, the amount of time needed to move the infantry in a position, but you got to get your batteries up there. And there's clearly going to be some counter battery fire going going back and forth. Let me read from Rhodes's report. He says, quote, being threatened from two directions. So there you have it. He's claiming he's threatened from two directions and not even thinking offensively. He's thinking he's threatened. I determined to attack with my center and right, holding at base still another force emerging from the town. With Dole's brigade, which was moved somewhere to the left, and trusting to this gallant brigade, thus holding them until General Early's division arrived. So he talks about getting, he's going to make the attack with his center and right. He makes some comments about getting Dole's brigade into position. Finding that the enemy was rash enough to come out from the woods to attack me, 
That's the movement we think of the Union skirmishers. I determined to meet him when he got to the foot of the hill I occupied. And as he did so, I caused Iverson's brigade to advance and at the same moment gave in person to O'Neill the order to attack. I'll pause there. So Rhodes is saying, I caused Iverson to advance and at the same moment gave in person to O'Neill the order to attack. Eric? Should we touch on what is one of the most often asked questions about the attack from Oak Hill? Yeah, but before we do, I do want to kind of take a look at Edward O'Neill's report on the battle. Well, I was going to come to that. It has some interesting things. Yeah. So what we're seeing with O'Neill at this point is, I think, a little bit of confusion as to exactly what his role is, not just where his men need to go, but also what his role is as a brigade commander. He's going to note in his report General Rhodes said he would command in person so that I only move forward with my 12th, 26th, and 6th Alabama regiments. Why the brigade was thus deprived of two regiments, I have never been informed. Now, let's look at a little bit of background here of Robert Rhodes. Before he is a division commander, he commands this Alabama brigade. So he has a personal connection to it. It's not the first time we're going to see in a battle where former commanders stick with their old units. There's, I think, a sense of comfort, and you know these guys. And I think Rhodes, there is some question maybe of whether he feels O'Neill is the right guy to be leading this brigade, which he has a lot of investment in. So maybe there's kind of a tendency, if I can't trust this guy, I'm going to do it myself. Mm -hmm. The problem is Robert Rhodes on July 1st, is a division commander. Right, exactly. He's not a brigade commander. So what this does is this emphasis on the Alabama brigade of Edward O'Neill causes him to sort of step away and not be that guiding hand. Now, you could say, well, the staff could possibly do this, but that staff is new to division commander. Right, I agree. You know, so this is, it's not an assumption that he can step away right now. I think this is going to be a critical factor in what causes really the debacle that is the Confederate attack on Oak Hill. Yeah, I agree. And I didn't know how deep we were going to go with O'Neill. But I mean, Rhodes adds in his report that I indicated to O'Neill precisely the point to which he was to direct the left of the regiments, then under his orders. Now, we know the 5th Alabama is one of the units now that's kind of held back in reserve. Rhodes says the 5th Alabama, which formed the extreme left of the brigade under reserve, was under my own immediate command. So now you've got, so I agree with you, you've got Rhodes not only not playing the role of division commander, but it's really even kind of a half-assed brigade commander. Like he's telling O'Neill, you take these regiments, I'll take mine. And what I think the problem here definitely is, unfortunately, you've got poor Iverson kind of over literally on the other end of the hill, kind of waiting for his orders. And that's going to play out in Iverson's attack. And I think what we see for Iverson, clearly he's thinking, what are my orders? What's my role here? Say that. Where the heck is the division commander? Now, Iverson will receive a lot of criticism for his positioning later in this attack. I'm not defending or arguing against his actions, but what I'm saying is it's putting more impetus on Iverson to start thinking about what's the general plan here? What do I need to tell my brigade? What do I need to know for my brigade to function on this field? And I think this might start to play in why Iverson tends to stick back more, because simply he's trying to figure out what the heck is going on. 
in a perfect world, you would have roads in the center of his division, mm-hmm. sending couriers and yep. staff out, informing what needs to be going on. But there's clearly a communication gap between what's going on at the division level and what's being sent out not only to Iverson, but also Junius Daniel. So yeah. all these units are supposed to cooperate with each other, but there's nobody giving a guiding hand to make that cooperation happen. Yeah, and Iverson touches on this confusion in his report, so we'll go there. He goes, My brigade was ordered by Rhodes to form line of battle, advance towards Gettysburg. General Rhodes here took upon himself the direction of the brigade and moved it by the right flank. So, so far, so good. Rhodes seems to be kind of taking the direction to move them at least in a position. And they talks about masses of the enemy were being observed on the plain in our front. General Rhodes ordered a halt until artillery could be brought to play upon them. So that's what I said earlier. I think part of the delay here is now getting the Confederate artillery into position. Iverson then goes on to talk about the cannonading that ensued. And here's the part that I wanted to get to. This is Iverson writing. Not understanding the exact time at which the advance was to take place, I dispatched a staff officer to Rhodes to learn at what time I was to move forward and received instructions not to move until my skirmishers, their skirmishers, became hotly engaged. Shortly afterward, however, I received an order to advance to meet the enemy. And learning that the Alabama brigade on my left was moving, I advanced at once. Boy, if that doesn't speak to confusion, I don't know what does. And I want to touch on the skirmishers a little bit as well, because you will often see the idea that Iverson never deploys skirmishers. Well, I think not only does he deploy skirmishers, I think he deploys actually two batches of skirmishers. There's that initial skirmishers that we talked about that fought on Keckler's Hill and up towards Cobain Farm and Oak Hill. A little early, they seem to kind of end up around the Moses McLean Farm, right, away from the rest of the brigade. There's also some evidence that Iverson will send more men in front. But once again, think about what he's seeing. Think about what he's interpreting this as. So the skirmishers don't go all the way forward because now the order's been given. You got to go. O'Neill's moving. Get Recall those skirmishers. We have to move. Adding to the confusion, uh, we actually have one account from a soldier in the 20th North Carolina that's going to write, it was always my experience that we had the most meager information of the enemy at the start of the attack, and this was no exception. So what he's saying is, in a lot of attacks, we don't really know what we're heading towards. It's very clear this brigade does not have a sense of what's in front. They're basically working on the assumptions that they have had up to this point, which, as we're going to see, are going to be incorrect. You know, as I always say on the field for this particular action, people always ask, how are they surprised? How do they get surprised? How are they surprised to find Union troops? And it's not like when the attack starts, they go, oh, heavens, Union troops. We had no idea they were there. That's not the point. The point is really where are they posted and in what strength? Because as we see, as we get closer to Oak Ridge, you know, back to the skirmishers, because I know this is a popular subtopic with Iverson. I... You know, I'm just not sure. I I just can't sort of decide to my own satisfaction. You know, I, I agree. I know they had skirmishers out near Keckler's Hill, but I can't I can't agree to my own satisfaction whether or not the skirmishers are even involved here on this attack from Oak Hill. But I do agree with what he says in his report. Oh crap, O'Neill's moving. We gotta go. Yeah, and this goes to one of the time honored questions of this attack at our very first episode. We joked about Park Ranger Greg Coco's response when asked who attacked first, Iverson and O'Neill. And of course, he you know, will say, I don't know who attacked. I don't care. 
they attacked. There's something to be said for that, actually. There is something to be said for that. In that it is very confusing. And in our minds, we want this to be very orderly. But what I think we've already established is this is a completely dysfunctional, disorganized situation. And there's a lot of questions of who attacked first. Now, it depends on not to get into semantics, but what is the definition of attacks first? Does it mean the first unit to move out? Mm. Or does it mean the first unit to receive fire? There's two ways of looking at that. I think it's very clear that O'Neill moves first. But I think there is maybe a question of whether O'Neill receives fire first. Because there's some accounts from Iverson and men in the ranks that seem to suggest, you know, I know Mm -hmm. of one account where a soldier said, we opened the ball. Yep. Another soldier will say that, you know, we led the attack, you know, so from their perspective, that might be how they're viewing it. And I think there's also some questions as to if O'Neill goes first and they make contact first, would you not have heard that gunfire? Yeah. That's a hard one for me to kind of overcome. And I know we had a listener question about that. Yeah. But we could very well be looking at maybe this was happening almost simultaneous. I think, see, I think that's a big part of it. I think, yes, O'Neill steps off first, but I think Iverson steps off very shortly thereafter. So for much of the time, I believe the two commands are, in fact, in motion together. You know, the more I think about this over the years, to me, it's not so much at this point a matter of who attacks first, but who gets repulsed first. Because clearly they are not hitting the Oak Ridge position. Now, if we didn't say, you know, Baxter's position is sort of basically like uh, an inverted V, you know, and you're going to have one version of the V facing north, which, you know, today we kind of think is mostly going to repulse O'Neill. We think most of Baxter's guys who are facing north are they going to pivot, face west, and hit Iverson. To me, the issue isn't so much who goes first. But I do think who is repulsed first. And I think I'm still going to be biased towards the traditional view that O'Neill is repulsed first, which basically is going to free up all of Baxter's guys to unload on Iverson. Now, this issue of, you know, could they not hear O'Neill in action? You know, I think, again, they're marching at the same time for a lot of this assault, and I think by the time Iverson's guys get close enough to Oak Ridge, then you have O'Neill engaged. I don't know. I've never really known what to make of all that. And I think that's the big issue for a lot of students. I don't think you can make an airtight case that Iverson engages first. I think you can make a strong circumstantial case that he did. Conversely, I think you can do the same thing For O'Neill, depending on how you want to read these accounts and what order you put them in, I think if anything, on paper, this looks like a very straightforward attack. When you start delving into it, it's anything but. And there's at times very conflicting accounts of what's going on. Even union accounts conflict on the order of things are going on. Yeah. One thing I think is interesting, though, is let's look at it, since this is the Iverson episode, Uh let's look at, you know, what are they thinking they're approaching? Right. And one of the best accounts we have is actually from 2nd Lieutenant Walter Montgomery of the 12th North Carolina. He's going to describe enemy position as follows. That part of the federal line which Iverson's brigade assaulted is easily described. It ran upon the top of the ridge almost due north and south about 550 yards with its extreme right on the Mummusburg Road and with its left resting on a piece of timberland. 
two-thirds of the line was protected by a substantial rock fence right. commencing on the Mummisburg Road. The other part of the line had no rock wall in its front, but the commanding ground fell abruptly to the east, thereby affording good cover and protection to the troops there. Now, one of the things we would have to look at here is it's not like Iverson is totally blind. Mm -hmm. Because if we are working under the assumption that a detachment of his brigade sharpshooters are on the McLean property, they would have had a view into that. But there does not appear to be any communication between these two pieces or also no communication from the division to facilitate saying, hey, this is what we're seeing This is what you need to see. So once again, this adds to an already confusing situation. Yeah, it does. And I think with Iverson's guys, remember, folks, Iverson's guys prior to the attack are not deployed on the summit of Oak Hill. If they can get on the summit of Oak Hill, it's probably a different ballgame as far as what they can see. They are deployed below Oak Hill. Basically, today, I'm going to make a general statement. I know somebody's going to nitpick, but a general statement. They're kind of deployed Just to give you an idea today in terms of the modern battlefield, where the Mummersburg Road and Buford Avenue kind of crisscross at where we know was the site of the John Forney farm, Iverson's guys were probably, prior to the assault, deployed west and a little bit north of the John Forney farm. So they're on low ground. They can't see what they're going at. Now, Eric brought up the point of the stone wall along Oak Ridge, uh, which I think maybe we'll come back to later when we kind of get closer, because again, there's there's a lot of confusion about the, um, the stone wall. But I think Rhodes has told them, you're going to attack, and you're basically going to strike the flank of those Yankees in the woods. And I think from where Iverson starts off, Baxter's line, which would extend out from Cutler in the woods, I just think Baxter's not visible at all. I don't think, folks, there's a whole lot of mystery to this. I think Baxter's guys are primarily on the eastern slope of Oak Ridge. Iverson is attacking from low ground. They know there are Yankees out there, but they don't know how many of them are there, and they don't really, maybe they don't know the whole extent of the line until literally it's too late. This brings in the John Forney farm and its impact it's going to have on this attack. There's some interpretations that have Iverson attacking right through the Forney farm. I have a hard time going with that. I just think if you look at how soldiers operate on a battlefield, especially in 19th century warfare, they tend to do what makes the most common sense. Trying to advance through a farm disrupts your alignment. It disrupts your order. The easier thing to do is move around it. Think about what Marshall's Brigade does on July 3rd around the ruins of the Bliss Farm. They don't march right through the smoldering ruins. They move around it. Kershaw at the Rose Farm. So I think there's evidence to show this. Also, we have to understand that there's going to be a number of fences in this area as well. Um, We had one of our listeners, our good friend of the show, Hawkeye, said, you know, what impact do these fences have? And while we don't have a number of accounts saying that they're impacting them, I have to think in their deployments... They are. And there's sometimes things that soldiers don't write about because it's just so common. Right. It's so mundane to them. We would be fascinated by like every detail, but it was just mundane to them. So my interpretation is that what we begin to see is the presence of the Forney Farm and also the fences that were part of that farmstead causes Iverson's brigade to shift more to the south, away from the Mummisburg Road a bit. This also is pulling them further away from Edward Mm O'Neill. So 
there's sometimes things that, yes, you're wanting to keep that alignment, but you're not going to keep that alignment. Just have your order of battle thrown off by the disruptions caused by a farm. Now, we have no full evidence of this. This is just me sort of freestyling and speculating here. But once again, as I say, walk the ground and see what makes the most sense. Well, as many of our listeners did on October 31st, 2020 for our Iverson's Pits Halloween tour. Many of you guys, including Hawkeye, did walk the ground with us. And I think if you follow the advance, it makes a lot of sense. Also, we have to get these units of Iverson's Brigade ultimately in a certain position mm-hmm. to be hit. And I think what we're going to look at is really using the 12th North Carolina as kind of a good guide for this. We have to talk about that swale they're eventually going to find. Well, they've got to be in the ballpark of the swale. They know they go into a swale there. So it's hard to have the interpretation of they attack through the Forney Farm and the 12th North Carolina ends up in the swale they do. I just don't see them getting that far removed from the rest of the brigade. Since we've introduced the Forney Farm, why don't we just talk a little bit about the Forney? Since it's a, not only is it a significant landmark on the field during this attack, but frankly, the whole action occurs on Forney property. And you know, it's a little, it's a little local human interest to, um, to get above and beyond just the battle minutia and the tactics and stuff like that. So the John Forney Farm, which no longer stands at the time of the battle. Again, as I said before, it would have been at the intersection basically of Buford Avenue and the Mummasburg, or as some of the locals like to say, the Mummasburg Road. The house basically stood behind where is today the 17th Pennsylvania Monument and the barn and, as Eric alluded to, other outbuildings stretched down towards where the 9th New York Monument is. Um, the Forneys, you know, this was not a hard scrabble existence. We're not talking about a couple of shacks. These were some big buildings and, and it was a big farm. It was 100 plus acres. Some accounts put it as high as 150 acres. John Forney had purchased in 1859. Uh, he had married his wife, Mary Forney, in 1862. And Forney's daughter later wrote that the original house, which again, we have probably some post-battle photos of, was two stories with a log addition then attached in 1863. So again, it's a pretty big house. There's a number of Tipton images before the place was torn down in the 1930s to make room for the peace light. There's a number of Tipton images that show, you know, again, what looks like a pretty big house and pretty big barn. Now, I did just kind of want to mention as a side note, and I mentioned this on the tour, one of the local, the Swope family history actually alleged that the Forney property was Richard Ewell's headquarters during the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, I think we're both skeptical on that. You know, it doesn't really seem like it would fit, although I certainly think Ewell and some of the boys could have at least used it for a little while. But in his damage claim, Forney listed his buildings as being greatly damaged by shells, and Forney did say the farm was occupied as a field hospital, although again with one account from Major Charles Blacknell of the 23rd North Carolina, who said he was temporarily treated there. We don't have much evidence of it being used as a uh, as a field hospital, although Forney did file an extensive damage claim. I think, Eric, you had an anecdote or two about the Forneys? Yeah, I think one of the interesting items that if you look into the family's history, John Forney, I think, further showing us this is not this hard, scrabble, dirt farm family. He actually hires a substitute mm-hmm. during the war. So you're looking at, you got to have 300 bucks to do that. So this is clearly not a guy that is losing at life here. He's doing pretty well. He's got a very large farm. He's got the money to do that. And 
going back to the idea of it being a hospital, I don't know if it was necessarily a hospital during the battle itself, but I could certainly see as the armies leave it becoming a hospital. Because mm-hmm. you think about, too, where it's at, you would have been under the guns of Cemetery Hill. That's yeah. still a, a dangerous yeah, right, place right, to have right, a hospital. Right. So I think the idea is that, yeah, it might have been used later, but I don't think it's a ba- a hospital during the battle. Yeah, and there's the one indication that we have from Major Blacknell of the 23rd North Carolina almost suggests that it would have been like the equivalent of what we would consider to be an aid station. Talks about being shot in the mouth and temporarily brought there before being moved further to the rear. Now, as an side anecdote, we know Rhodes' Division Hospital was literally up the road, probably at the David Shriver Farm, which again would have been, I think a lot of O'Neill's brigade was treated there, and a little bit further up the Jacob Hankey Farm, probably ultimately served as the field hospital for most of Iverson's brigade. So we know the division hospitals are really just up the Moomensburg Road from Oak Hill. And again, if you're ever in the area, I'd encourage you to take a, a ride out there. Some of the built, some of the farmsteads are still standing. Some of them are not, but it's a um, but it's a neat little drive. So probably not used as a field hospital, but again, Forney clearly indicated in his damage claim that, quote, everything about the place was completely destroyed by the battle, except the house and barn, and they were well riddled by shot and shell, until they were torn down in the 1930s for the peace line. Right, and and it's interesting, the property remains in the family's hands until the 1930s. So it's not like a lot of properties we have in the battlefield where we see they change hands in the post-battle period. It's the Forneys that sell that property, and then actually another sale to make more room to put the peace light there. The challenge is, is that this is going to be the the culmination of the last reunion, the 1938 anniversary, the 75th anniversary. We don't want this old rundown right. farm ruining the view we have. So the National Park Service knocks it down. Now we will go. Oh my God! Why would they do that? Well. Keep in mind, in 1938, historical preservation is a lot different than what it is today. And even today, in some cases, some buildings can be so far gone they cannot be saved. Today, there probably would have at least been an attempt to salvage the farm, but it now goes as to one of those farms that is no longer standing. But if you do walk the ground, you can still see where some of the structures mm-hmm. were. You yeah. can still see the basement. Yeah. You can still see some other things out there. So it's um, it's kind of one of those very important farms that are no longer with us. The fact that it's not there in our mind, we don't think, oh, yeah, there's a farm there. I think that changes how we interpret this attack from what actually happened in 1863. Yeah, and the only other thing I'll add is, so when we did our very special battlefield tour on October 31st, and we had a great turnout, in the audience was the Forney's great, is it great or great, great? I forget. One of the two. Well, yeah, well, it, some kind, some version of great. It was great either great, 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 great. Well, it was yeah. either great or great, great grandson. And Mr. Forney, if you're listening, I apologize. I, I don't have my notes here from that tour in front of me. But I will say that uh, we were honored to have Forney descendants walk the ground with us and our super fans like Superfan Hawkeye and many others when we did that tour. And Forney did say that there was a family anecdote that a pile of amputated limbs was piled up, again, kind of in and around that intersection and where the house was. So to the point we made earlier, I don't think either of us thinks it was used as a hospital during the battle, but quite possibly could have been used afterwards when probably almost literally any prominent house and barn in the county was, at least for a while, uh, used to take care of the uh, the dead and wounded. But that was a neat little factor. You come out with us, you walk the battlefield with descendants. I mean, how Yeah, cool and that, that was something we did not anticipate. Yeah, that was not planned. And that was kind of a surprise, and that was kind of – that was really cool. That was cool. Um, I think it gave – 
some added depth that otherwise we would not have been able to do on the tour. So we've addressed the Fournies, unless you had any other anecdotes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I would agree with you. Yes, there are some esteemed interpretations that have Iverson's assault literally moving through the Fournie property. Like you, I think it would make a lot more sense for them to just pivot a little bit to the south or to the right. They're going to the right. A little bit pivot around those buildings. Accounts indicate their frontage is probably about 400 yards. So from that point, they pivot around the um, the buildings, and they're almost ready to go. And if we have anything else we want to talk about. And I think we should also point out, by this point, the 5th, the 12th, the 20th, and the 23rd North Carolina, these are veteran units. These are not brand new green troops that don't know what the heck they're doing. They've had experienced commanders. They've had experience in combat. Experienced troops behave differently than green troops. And I think that just adds to the fact that I'm sorry, I have a hard time believing any interpretation that has them coming through All right. the foreign yeah, property. Fair enough. Fair it enough. just doesn't make sense. Fair enough. And we'll do the alignment. So left to right. So this is from the Confederate left would be the 5th North Carolina the 20th North Carolina, the 23rd North Carolina, and then on the right would be the 12th North Carolina. Now, should we point out that the 5th North Carolina is only commanded by a captain? Yes. There? So again, with, you know, attrition and casualties or that, you could raise some concerns there that you don't have any any higher ranking officers in the regiment. But the 5th is going to be on the left of the brigade as they advance. As Eric said earlier, they are going to kind of pivot. Veer is the word I'm looking for. They're going to veer to their right, away from the Mummersburg Road. To the point about fences, yes, I have seen indication that there is a fence running parallel to the Mummersburg Road that indeed might have kind of framed their left. Before they step off, though, you know, we haven't touched on General Iverson himself in a while. So I'm thinking this is going to be like a General Armistead moment. Iverson's going to get in front of the brigade, take his hat off, jam it onto his sword and say, you know, come on, Tar Heels, I'll lead you. I'm guessing that's maybe not what's going to happen. In theory, that is what should have probably happened. If Iverson was maybe a little wiser, that's maybe what he should have done. But I think we have to look at it in a couple ways. I think you have the great account that basically Iverson's pep talk is, all right, boys, give him hell. (laughs) Good luck. I'll stay back here. Now, you could attribute that to Iverson's cowardice or his unwillingness to expose himself to danger, or it's at this point that he is still looking to try to coordinate all these other pieces, and he does not think his troops are going to be engaged at this point. So the idea is, maybe I'm dealing with getting this thing together, and I can still ride up here by the time we meet the enemy. Maybe. Because think about where they think the enemy is. Yeah. They're gonna, you know, they're going to see probably part of Cutler's troops there. There's no doubt about that. I think they see them. They'll also see part of Roy Stone's brigade, I think, eventually. You know, the 12th North Carolina is going to receive some fire. Stone as they move forward. So I think what we're seeing is Iverson is thinking where my target is, is further to the south, right. not what's immediately in front of To the of right, me. exactly. And further also, to the right. I think he is thinking that if I do have this time to coordinate, I can still, I could possibly ride quickly by the time they meet there. So I'm not trying to say that Iverson is a total coward. I'm at least trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, which I think is fair to do. That is a generous and interpretation, my I friend. Think, yes. I think we need to be fair to these we'll individuals. We'll be fair but firm. Yeah, you know, right. I'm not I'm not <laughs> saying he put in a heck of a performance that day. I think the optics of him saying, all right, boys, give him hell. See you later. 
As he, as he slugs the whiskey bottle yeah, behind the log you know, and kind looks of thing. for the log he wants to hide behind. Yeah. By the way, did we identify where exactly Iverson's log was? Did we ever figure that out? No. no, no. We never and, you know, actually, we, we joked of actually bringing out a log onto the battlefield. Uh, and a bottle you know of Jack you, and you know, just kind of. Yeah, yeah, you know, actually, you know, I can tell you where the log is. It's probably somewhere tucked away in a closet at the Adams County Historical Society. Right There you now. go. That's <laughs> probably where it is. Our good friends over there who. Uh, a plug you know, for our friends yeah, at the ACHS you know, and well-deserved. Yeah, you know, if it's going to be anywhere, it's going to be there. Exactly. So, all right. So let, let's talk a little bit about Iverson as the charge kind of steps off here. So just going back to what we said before, because, you know, I know we've gone off on some sidebars. Iverson said in his report that I dispatched a staff officer to learn at what time I was to move forward. And shortly afterwards, I received an order that, you know, Colonel O'Neill's Alabama Brigade was advancing. And so learning that the Alabama Brigade on my left was moving, I advanced it once. And so I do agree I do agree with the chaos and the fast movement here. So, again, I, I always on my tours, I always liken this attack to, you know, they kind of don't do a whole lot of anything from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock and then boom, go, you know, kind of thing. So I, I certainly think the rapidity of all of this probably doesn't lend itself to Iverson kind of, you know, getting in front of the men. And going forward with that, you know, again, the legend is that he basically says, give them hell as they're stepping off. Eric, what strikes me is, you know, when I read Iverson's report, he then goes into detail about what he did. You know, I stayed behind. I looked for support. I galloped hither and fro, you know, looking to get this guy to support and to see where this guy's support was. And to me, it just felt like it was with different names. It's a replay of the chancellorsville report so once again don't worry guys your general is doing all this stuff in the rear while you move forward and to me it just felt like i felt like i see a pattern chancellorsville to gettysburg his rationale for not going forward is doggone it i'm the general who's gonna get stuff done in the rear while you guys move forward it's kind of how it feels like to me I think also when you make that step from regimental command to brigade command, I often say the challenge of being promoted is not so much the added work, but you have to see the bigger picture. Yeah, right. And you have to understand how you fit into that bigger picture. And I think Iverson at Chancellorsville and at Gettysburg, I think we're seeing he's having trouble figuring out where do I fit into this. Now, really good brigade commanders just figure it out on their own. You know, I think you look at the performance of Junius Daniel. Junius Daniel has a hard time figuring out what the heck I'm supposed to be doing, but you don't see him in the rear basically, well, what do I do? No, he he acts. Iverson does not seem to have that same ability. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Ramser doesn't really know exactly what I'm supposed to do. What does he do? He acts. Right, right. You know, I, so I right. think I think what it is, we may be looking, we talked about, I think, in you know, the first part of this. Maybe Iverson has just promoted one yeah, maybe. rung too high. Maybe. You know, maybe. Um, maybe he handle. I think what we'll see is he seems to have a pretty solid handle on regimental command. He done 20th North Carolina. He yeah. seemed pretty um, good. And I think we'll talk about a little yeah. later when we talk about what he does after the war. Yeah, he seems yeah. to have a little bit better handle of those things. So I think maybe it could just be a situation that this is maybe a, a step too far for Alfred Iverson. I, I would agree. And so 
while I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt, because I believe he should be moving forward, I'm not at the same time then going to the other extreme. And the other extreme is, you know, him and his staff are Mm -hmm. taking slugs from bottles while they hide behind a log. And, you know, Iverson supposedly cautioning the guys, don't expose yourself, you know, stay behind this log. I'm definitely not going to that extreme with Iverson. I, you know, I would maybe, look, maybe there's a little cowardice there. I don't know, but I think it's a little more at this point incompetence at the brigade level than it is the the wanton sort of, you know, having a drink while his men get slaughtered kind of thing. Yeah, I think we've clearly established he's not drunk. I don't think he's being a total coward. And if you you missed the drinking part, listen to part one, because we covered it well in part one. So here we now have this brigade being unled in their mind, moving towards an enemy of unknown position and unknown size. Yep. And as you're going to see in a few moments, this brigade is essentially moving yeah. almost to its annihilation. Right, right. You know, almost the the classic description of this comes from the February 22nd, 1864 Richmond. Richmond Daily Dispatch, which basically says, when Iverson started forward around 2.30, Things went awry at once. He committed the unpardonable sin for a brigadier general of not going forward with his troops. So we covered that. With the words, give them hell, he sent his men ahead while he himself stayed in the rear where he was unable to correct what soon proved to be a fatally flawed alignment. That's that veering to the right we talked about. His left is pulling further away from the Mumasburg Road. Worse... Iverson ordered his men forward without reconnoitering the ground or putting out skirmishers. There's the allegation of skirmishers. Thus, unwarned, unled as a brigade, went forward Iverson's deserted band to its doom. We did get a lot of questions on what is a brigadier general's proper place in an attack. It really depends on the circumstances. I mean, you think about Pickett's Charge, we have all the brigade commanders, maybe minus one, our good friend John Brockenbrough, uh, leading from the front. You know, I think we think of that. But also we have an account on July 1st of Johnston Pettigrew leading his brigade, but he is behind it. Not as a means of cowardice, but of coordination. To me, I would argue a brigade commander needs to be at the point where they're most needed. Right. Whether that's in the front or the back. Or the back to coordinate. The circumstances determine that. I would say at this point, Iverson is very much torn here of where he needs to be. I don't know if it's personally or professionally or any number of reasons, but needless to say, the men in the ranks view themselves as being unlit. Yeah, right. right. That's ultimately what matters. It's not what Iverson thinks he's doing. History is going to record what the men of the brigade think. Mm-hmm. And that is the overarching interpretation. And I would argue, too, it is a valid interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Because from their perspective, that's what it looks like. And later, with what happens to them, it wouldn't shock me if some of them felt, you know what, we're set up. <laughs> you know, here he is. He knew what we were getting into. He's not He's not man enough to go forward to it, so he let us go into it unled. Right. Uh, when people have raw emotions, things can quickly get interpreted much differently than maybe what they are. I think we begin to see that here. So as the brigade's moving forward, already we're seeing alignment issues here. My interpretation is that ultimately the fire that the 12th North Carolina is going to receive on the right is going to cause them to lag behind a Mm -hmm. little bit. I think we're going to see a bit of a, the rest, the three regiments move forward. The 12th lags kind of behind. Uh, I think if we, if you walk it out into the field, 
that makes the most sense. And so, and certainly, so standard rules, if you start receiving fire, you slow down. Very rarely do you speed up when you start getting shot at. Uh, that's not a human reaction. You sort of slow down. And I think that's what we're going to begin to see, that already this alignment is falling apart. And mm-hmm. ultimately, that is Iverson's job to make sure that his brigade is perfectly aligned yeah, to the best yeah. of his ability yeah. in this attack. Yeah, and I think I think even if Iverson were immediately behind the brigade, that would be one thing. But, you know, the guy seems to be up on Oak Hill, and we don't know that for certain. It's just sort of, you know, what we kind of think. So, you know, we've talked about that. Let me just sort of describe the advance a little bit, the ground. Let's describe the ground. So basically the distance from Buford Avenue, where about where Iverson steps off, to Doubleday Avenue, where they're going to hit Baxter's position, is about a third of a mile or about 515 yards. So when I call it Pickett's Charge in miniature, it literally is. It's about a third of Pickett's Charge. I mean, I walk Pickett's Charge a lot. You can do Pickett's Charge in about... 15 minutes. I think when we walked this on October 31st, we did it in five minutes. Yeah. So you can you can get across the ground literally in a matter of minutes. So one thing this is not is this is not Pickett's boys getting pounded with artillery for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You can get across the ground pretty quick. But other than the Forney Orchard, uh, there was apparently not much in terms of bushes or trees or growth between Iverson's starting point in Oak Ridge. Uh, according to Forney, the field was covered with timothy, which is a, a hay grass grown as forage for horses and animals. So it's basically tall grass, but about a half to two thirds of the way through the field, there is a gully that is roughly 20 to 25 feet lower than the starting point. Now, when you walk the charge today, that gully is still there. Now, we should point out that there was at one time the Gettysburg Airport or Gettysburg Flying Service, which basically served from the 1920s through the 1960s and basically ran a runway right through this field, which I think quite probably corrupted or graded some of the field. So we can't say that the field that is in existence today perfectly matches 1863. In most likelihood, it didn't. But what we can tell you is there is that gully that is at least still there today and could have potentially shielded the guys about a half to a third of the way across the field. And, you know, again, we'll see how that turns out when they actually collide with Baxter's guys. So Baxter's brigade has about 1,400 men in and around Oak Ridge. And as we said before, they are at least mostly covered by a stone wall and the eastern slope of the ridge. Now, as Iverson's men advance... One of the men who served in Baxter's 88th Pennsylvania described Iverson, quote, Iverson's men as, quote, as orderly as if on brigade drill, while behind the stone wall, the Union soldiers with rifles cocked and fingers on the triggers waited and bided their time, feeling confident. A soldier in the 12th North Carolina said the men, quote, bounded forward, not knowing certainly where the enemy was for his whole line with every flag was concealed behind a rock wall on the right and center and a drop in the ground on the left. So, Eric, that's the description as Iverson's men are marching forward to their doom. 
And when they got somewhere between 80 to 100 yards from st- the stone wall on Oak Ridge, if you guys want to measure that, the advanced marker today to the 88th Pennsylvania is somewhere about 90 yards or so, I think, from Oak Ridge. So right about at that distance, Baxter's men got up from behind the stone wall and literally, quote, unleashed a sheet of fire and smoke that belched from the wall, flashing full in the face of the Confederates. Hundreds of the Confederates fell at the first volley, plainly marking their line with a ghastly row of dead and wounded men. There's a lot of awful moments at Battle Gettysburg. I would wager this is the worst that I think troops suffer on the field. I mean, just how quickly and violently this seemingly out of nowhere materializes. There's Union troops where they did not expect them. And and we get a sense of this from the accounts of... Mm -hmm. Hundreds of men in a matter of seconds drop. It's not all day fighting we lose hundreds of men. It's in a matter of seconds. One soldier in the 23rd North Carolina was in the second rank when this happens. He is going to note that to a letter to his brother that he was sprayed by the brains of the first rank. Another soldier, Private Penville Woods of the 5th North Carolina, was wounded in six places. Another private was killed, and it found that he had five bullet holes in his head alone. That shows you that most of the rounds that Baxter puts in is on target. Mm-hmm. These are chests and headshots. Another private is going to write in his diary afterwards. There were within a few feet of us, by actual count, 79 North Carolinians laying dead in a straight line. It was perfectly dressed. Three had fallen to the front and the rest had fallen backward. Yet the feet of all these men were in a perfectly straight line. They had all been evidently killed by one volley of musketry and they had fallen in their tracks without a single struggle. This is brutal. There's no other way to put it. After this initial shock, really all these men can do is try to survive. Mm -hmm. Unit cohesion is gone. These men go to ground as quickly as they can, hugging the ground, looking for any protection from the volleys that they are being faced with. To give you a sense of what they are up against, some scholarship has suggested that when we look at the fire from Baxter, Paul, and Cutler, three brigades, most counts place them with around 60 rounds in their cartridge box. Think about the 12th Massachusetts Monument has an empty cartridge box on it. If you look at the numbers of these commands, the fact that many of them talk about having empty cartridge boxes, upwards of 100,000 rounds were potentially fired at Iverson during this time. Just think about that for a second. 100,000 rounds fired at this time. At a range from 80 to 100 yards. So Iverson's guys are literally dropping. Now, remember I told you before, there's a little bit of a depression about maybe two-thirds of the way through the field. I think some of them probably did crawl back to the low ground. But again, all they could really do was wait and be shot at. You know, and that was all they did. Um, I did want to talk about numbers. So a lot of times people always say that Iverson's heaviest casualties occurred in the regiments on the left. So let's take a look at that. So the 5th North Carolina, which was the unit on the left, does have the highest number of losses. Now, they came in with 473 men, 289 total casualties. That's total casualties for a 61% loss rate. And that includes 64 men killed. 
Next to them was the 20th North Carolina. They had 253 losses out of 372 men. That's a 68% casualty rate. They had 41 killed. The 3rd Regiment over is the 23rd North Carolina. They actually have the highest casualty rate. They're 89%. 282 casualties out of 316 men, and that includes 65 killed. So actually the 23rd North Carolina, which is the right center, has the highest casualty rate and the most men killed, just barely eking out over the 5th North Carolina on the left. Last but not least, though, is the 12th North Carolina. Now, as we alluded to, they've been getting shot at. They've been lagging behind, but they also have a little bit of a depression that could protect them. The 12th North Carolina has what are significantly less casualties. I'll say only 36% casualties. You know, you compare that to a lot of storied units on the battlefield, like the 20th Maine and the 137th New York. 36% casualties would be a big number for any of them. But the 12th North Carolina has only 36% casualties and only suffers 12 killed. So really from left to right center, the losses are heavy all the way down the line for those three regiments. And I think, too, in the case of the 12th North Carolina, they're later going to reform and take part in an attack yeah, on the right. bridge as well. So some of those losses could, could be very well second have been action. even the second right. wave, right. not necessarily this. But I think what we see is it's incredibly violent. It's incredibly quick. And we, you know, we've kind of run the comparison of this being like Pickett's Charge. Mm -hmm. You know, at least with Pickett's Charge, you got a fighting chance there. I mean, these guys, it's there and then it's over. It's just incredibly quick and violent. And I think that's where you don't see with Pickett's Charge, there's a lot of glory that gets associated with the attack and a lot of legend. No, there's... There's none of that here. Yeah. This which is just incredibly depressing. Right, which I think we would, we would cover for the wrap-up as far as no glory. Um, now, the 88th Pennsylvania... There's an advance marker out in the field today, which is kind of a good point to kind of interpret from when you do the charge on the field. But, you know, on the Union side, I like General Henry Baxter. I like this guy. You know, he's he's a 42-year-old storekeeper from Michigan, uh, wounded three times prior to Gettysburg. Uh, and then he's going to be wounded a fourth time at the Wilderness. Baxter, to me, sounds like your true lead from the front kind of guy. Now, am I doing a compare and contrast between Baxter and Iverson? Oh, yes, I am. But Baxter's right there with his men, and he yells, up, boys, and give them the steal. And several Yankee regiments will literally rush forward from behind the stone wall and scooping up Iverson's men. One man said it was, quote, not a charge at all, but only a rush forward to drive in Iverson's men who were willing enough to surrender. And accordingly, many prisoners were taken along with a couple of battle flags. Uh, Sergeant Edward Gilligan of the 88th New York is going to receive a Medal of Honor for capturing the colors of the 23rd North Carolina. The color bearer would not give it up until Gilligan, quote, reasoned with him with the butt of my rifle. So folks, when you go down Oak Ridge today, you see that little advance marker down in the field, that's what this represents, kind of this final charge from Baxter's men to scoop up as many of Iverson's prisoners as they could get. We should also talk about you know, the capture of the 20th North Carolina's flag mm -hmm. by the 97th New York. Uh, Sergeant Sylvester Riley yep. grabbed the colors. However, this flag would later be recaptured 
by a company of the 45th North Carolina, as part, which is part of Junius Daniels' brigade as the Union troops were retreating through town. So at least that one comes back. And then I think an interesting story revolving around the capture of the 5th North Carolina's flag. What we're going to see is the flag is seized by Captain Erastus Clark, Company A of the 12th Mass. He did not turn in the prize that he captured. He keeps it into his dying day. After the war, he became a partner in a business with a former Confederate officer in Louisiana. After a pretty serious argument, it was decided the only way to settle it was with a duel, not using guns, but using eight-inch-long bowie knives. The two combatants were then locked in a windowless room. According to the, a 1911 account published in the 12th Massachusetts Regiment Association, each man entered the dark room from opposite sides through two doorways. The contest was long and bloody, ending in the death of both men whose bodies were fearfully hacked. Upon the person of Captain Clark, to the intense surprise of those present, was a Confederate battle flag he had captured at Gettysburg. The flag of the 5th North Carolina. And do you realize in episode one, we had a Santa Ana reference. In episode two, we've now had a Bowie knife reference. Is this becoming the Battle of the Alamo podcast? I'd be I'd be down with that. You know, I could I could handle some Davy Crockett a yeah, little bit. Yeah, and some yeah. William Barrett Travis. And maybe for a little break during our next yeah. hiatus. Maybe we do, you know, bands have concept albums. Maybe like season seven, we do the Texas Revolution. Maybe, maybe. You know, and, and just go from give, there. Give Who Gettysburg knows? a little bit of a rest. So a little bit back to the numbers. I know we probably got to wrap things up soon here. But again, I referenced before Robert Weinster's book, The Rashness of the Hour. One of the things he did was he actually did try to break up the casualties by day and by action. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, again, obviously things always then get lost in hyperbole and exaggeration. And, you know, it becomes hundreds were dead and 500 were killed in a line kind of thing. Winster's breakup for the casualties for July 1st only would seem to put it about 115 killed, another 61 mortally wounded, three missing, about 190 wounded, about 250 wounded and captured, and then about another 230 just flat out captured. So there's still some big numbers, and I'm not diminishing it, but if you're looking at killed on the field, you're probably somewhere at about 115 with about another 60 or so mortally wounded, give or take. You know, folks, those are just estimates. Let's talk, though, about what the guys could see. So you already read the one quote about the famous quote about them kind of being perfectly dressed. Uh, Rhodes said in his OR that Iverson's men fought and died like heroes. His dead lay in a distinctly marked line of battle. His left was overpowered, and many of his men being surrounded were captured. But we have General Iverson himself with the famous, or shall we say infamous, quote, When I saw the white handkerchiefs raised and my line of battle still lying in position, I characterized the surrender as disgraceful. But when I found afterwards that 500 of my men were found lying on a line as straight as on a just dress parade, I exonerated, with one or two disgraceful individual exceptions, and claimed for the brigade that they fought nobly and died without a man running to the rear. What do we think of this? Once again, this is kind of typical Iverson. He almost says, I made a mistake. I'm atoning for it. 
but there's a few exceptions. Exactly. And, and it's almost like, just stop. Yeah. You know, just, when you make an apology, don't say, I'm sorry, but let me tell you what you did. No, just mm-hmm. apologize. And clearly he is incapable of doing that. He he is kind of incapable of doing that. So, you know, I kind of started out, you know, many hours ago in part one, almost sympathetic for Alfred Iverson, like the guy's kind of getting a bum rush kind of thing. I think the guy just comes off like, I don't want to use the word that I'm thinking of, but I just think he, I'll use the word prick, I guess. He just kind of comes off like a prick. And when you add a prickly personality to all of the other issues, and now you literally have his men getting shot down while he's somewhere else saying, well, you know, except for one or two disgraceful exceptions, I'm good with this. I mean, man, this guy just doesn't seem to get it. No, and I think what it is is that's also a reflection of the animosity. It's probably going both ways. I don't think it's one of these things Iverson is oblivious to the hate he has drawn. You would hope not. You know, I mean, (laughs) this guy is drawing some serious heat. I mean, he is, you know, I'm going to say it right now. He is the biggest heel in the territory. He's causing riots in arenas. Exactly. You know, this is like old school Louisiana pro wrestling here. You know, you look at like Ric Flair as a heel. You have as many people standing up and cheering for him. Dan Sickles as a heel. We could get as many people packing that auditorium cheering for Sickles. Could we really get half of our auditorium of super fans cheering on Alfred Iverson? You I'm know, just not seeing and, it. And there's there's a difference between good heat Right. And what is called go-away heat. Yeah. Simply, we're booing you just to leave. Alfred Iverson is the very definition of go-away heat. So now what we have is his brigade in shambles, pinned down. We'll probably deal with this in another episode, but, you know, the actions of Junius Daniel, the action of Stephen Ramser, also portions of Edward O'Neill's brigade really come to the rescue of Iverson. Um, you'll then yeah. later see the 12th North Carolina reform, and eventually the Union line on Oak Ridge is going to collapse. But right. Iverson really does not play a major role in that. No, not at all. And, and I, at all. Yeah. And and what we see is, you know, these questions of where exactly was he? And we talked about this in our field programs we've done. There is an area where he would have had a good view of what he's seen. There's other areas where he would not have had that view. So we tend to think probably he's somewhere in the vicinity of the Forney buildings around Mm -hmm. this time where he would have had that view down to see what's happening to his brigade. And of course, you know, it's not inconceivable that you would have had men of his regiment looking back and you see the general. Exactly. You see the staff. You know, yeah, yeah, you know. Now, we should give some credit to one member of Alfred Iverson's staff, um, Captain Halsey of his staff, who by all accounts performs very well in trying to rally the men of the brigade. Um, especially in this follow-up attack that comes. Um, He is mentioned in numerous reports for his service. So we do want to give credit. I think we actually have a a listener who reached out to us that's a descendant of Halsey that just said, can you at least mention him? So I do want to point that out, that it's not, you know, if people come away with this, that certainly we're, we're not giving kudos to Iverson for his ability, and at times maybe not kudos to his staff, at least in the case of Captain Halsey. Well, there he, you earned go. His, he earned his paycheck on July 1st. And we have a listener in the Halsey lineage. I didn't even know that. I must have missed that comment, so that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, I just thought it's a cool story that doesn't always... I mean, there's very few good takeaways no, there's on none. this day, so this is <laughs> maybe the best we can glean from this. Well, so. the other good takeaway would be 
dug on it. If you're a fan of Brigadier General Henry Baxter like I am, there you go with your chance. Hey, how about cool stories? Let's at least touch on Iverson's pits. Um, so, you know, again, we touched on earlier the notion of whether or not the Forney property was used as a field hospital. Neighbors actually later remembered the Jacob Hankey farm is literally being thronged with Confederate wounded, and that was probably mostly Iverson's brigade, that at one time at least a thousand Southern soldiers were there on adjacent sites. But as many people know, Iverson's dead were basically buried on the field where they fell. And that part of the field has become known over the years as Iverson's pits. Iverson's pits were essentially four shallow pits dug in a depression somewhere behind where the brigade fell. And yes, it was said that the grass grew more luxuriantly there where they were buried in this health market. Now, there's a number of accounts of people visiting Iverson's pits afterwards. Um, I'm just going to touch on the 1897 visit of the son of Major Charles Blacknell of the 23rd North Carolina, who we mentioned earlier. He was the guy who was hit in the mouth by a bullet, which knocked out several teeth and was temporarily carried to the Forney house. But according to the visit in 1897, quote, old Mr. Forney, who witnessed the battle, was then still alive. He was able to give a very clear idea of that part of the field. He showed me the Iverson pits, the trenches in which held the brigade's dead until years afterward when they were removed to Richmond. The luxuriant growth of the bitter weed marked their course, and some of the pits still yawned. In one of those, I found a flattened and deformed bullet, which at the disinternment must have fallen from one of the skeletons of the victims." And someone else later said that, you know, years later, 35 years later, that field was still covered with flattened bullets that presumably fell from the corpses when they were being disinterred along with um, along with other items. And it's from Clark's Regimental Extract, where we have the famous account uh, that says, you know, it was known throughout the neighborhood as the Iverson's Pits. And for years after the battle, there was a superstitious terror with regard to the field and that it was with difficulty that laborers could be kept at work there on approach of night on that account. Now, this might be the first time we've even mentioned ghosts or superstitions on the battlefield. And and we include this because this is not the creation of an entrepreneur in the 1990s. Right, right. This is what is being talked about. And I, I'm sure, you know, we all have somewhere where we grew up that kind of had a creepy story attached to it. Fort Niagara. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, for us, we had Blackbeard's house in Beaufort, which Blackbeard never even was in, but that's a whole other podcast altogether. But what we have is, I think, this area that it becomes infamous locally. Right. You know, it's the area where you go creep each other out, you know, and and it's not so much, you know, yeah, there were a lot of bodies there. But I think when you also think about what happened to them, mm-hmm. it's just, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, we also have, you know, adding to this from going back to Clark's regiments, which I would urge you, if you were doing any study of North Carolina troops in this battle, right. Clark's that. research or and his what's generally considered North Carolina regiments, 1861 to 1865, is a resource you need. It was reprinted uh, back in the 90s, but you can find actually digital copies online. Um, so I would highly recommend it. Now, keep in mind, these are all accounts written 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, but there's some good things in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that will help 
serve you well as you study the Battle of Gettysburg. We do have an account from the 12th North Carolina's entry in Clark's regiments where they talk about the rock wall there, uh, which is, of course, we've talked a lot about that stone wall. And I'll just quote a, a few parts of it. It said, the rock wall, which now stands at that part of the line along the left of the federal line, was put there after the battle. Right. Mr. Sheeds, who owns the ground there and who owned it at the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, makes that statement. Mr. Sheeds has built a residence on the spot occupied by the 97th New York and furnishes his visitors to that part of the battlefield, wine made from grapes grown where the 12th North Carolina left some of its dead. Ah, battlefield wine fertilized by the bodies of a vanquished foe. Man. More of these Gettysburg entrepreneurs. Man, that's harsh. Yeah. Yeah, no no way around that one. Um, <laughs> now, the um, speaking of resources, the Elliott burial map has about 150 bodies interred in this general area of Oak Ridge, and about 109 of them are basically grouped together west of the Oak Ridge position, so that might give you a rough idea of, of what was in the pits. Um, now, remember, of course, Confederate dead were exhumed from the Gettysburg battlefield uh, beginning in 1872. My guess would be Iverson's guys were included in the August 1872 shipment. Uh, that shipment arrived in Richmond of 882 soldiers in 98 boxes, which included many from the John Forney and the David Hankey farms. So I would think that Iverson's North Carolinians went to Richmond, of all places, in August of 1872, I believe. So we've kind of delved a little after the battle. Let's kind of wrap up. You know, what does the brigade do for the rest of July yeah. 1st into... You know, the rest of the battle, July 2nd, July 3rd, because I think often when we talk about Iverson, okay, they get annihilated, and then that's that. Um, let's just kind of put a little bit more context to what they do for the rest of the battle as well. So I th we did actually have a question uh, from a listener that said, what, if anything, did Iverson do for the remainder yeah. of the battle after the debacle on July 1st? So we want to thank Superfan Alex for that question. But Good yeah, question. we'll kind of delve into what does Iverson do or not do, and what does the brigade do for the rest of the battle? Yeah, so um, initially they are all going to be uh, after after the Confederates capture Oak Ridge in the areas west of town. Iverson's brigade is essentially, or what is left of Iverson's brigade, I guess we should say, is essentially going to be uh, with the rest of Rhodes' guys in and around the Long Lane area, in a, basically west of town. And from their participation in the July 1st, 2nd, or 3rd Battle of Gettysburg, their role is basically over. You know, we talk at times about why don't the Confederates make better use of what's in Long Lane, mm -hmm. and in some cases that's a valid criticism, but you ain't going to be doing anything with what's left of Iverson's guys on July 2nd, or even with the skirmishing that's going on in front of Long Lane on July 3rd. And, and even at times, that's pretty intense skirmishing. It is, yeah. There. So yeah. I think, you know, you're looking at these guys – they're not going into a general battle action, but they're probably in almost a more psychologically brutal situation that you don't get a break. Mm -hmm. You're constantly under fire considering what you went through the day before, and you're under this constant pressure. So, you know, it's a rough situation for them. There's a lot of accounts that operationally, Iverson is not even in command of these guys, that they're actually operating more under Stephen Ramser. 
at this time. We do have, we'll go into this a little bit later, yeah. but you know, I think there's, there's a lot of things here that do not look good for Alfred Iverson. It would be easy to say that, well, I assume Iverson is immediately removed from command by General Lee and no longer will he be part of the uh, Army of Northern Virginia. But that's not true. I go to Hagerstown July 6th. You know, we're talking about at that point, we're escorting Ewell's wagon trains and Iverson's men basically fought off an attack from Kilpatrick's cavalry. Officers and enlisted men alike seem to be generally pleased with the performance and Rhodes praised Iverson in this action. So he also notes Iverson's forced march arrival and, quote, making a hasty but skillful disposition of his troops, he soon routed the enemy cavalry, capturing a considerable number. Great credit is due Brigadier General Iverson for the handsome and prompt manner in which this affair was managed. So Eric, I'll touch on a point there. Coddington, right, kind of says, well, you know, maybe Iverson's having a nervous breakdown at Gettysburg. Really? Well, if he is, he's recovered from that breakdown by July 6th at Hagerstown. And you wonder how much of that is Iverson or how much of it is his troops, too. Well, there's that again. You know, I mean, there's and, – and I think we even see before Hagerstown, yeah. his – Iverson's brigade is going to play a role at the fighting at Monterey Pass. Mm -hmm. uh, right, I actually right. have a great account uh, from a soldier in the brigade – that he talks about as the federal cavalry is beginning to harass the wagon trains, Iverson comes up and says to his men, Yankees are annoying our wagon train in front. Go forward and give them hell. <laughs> Don't you think you can do it? Once nice. again, another Iverson type or not follow me, but go ahead and go give them hell. It, give know? them hell. Uh, and so what we see with Iverson, is as the campaign is over, there's there's some interesting accounts that we see. I'm going to first bring everyone's attention to Special Order Number 173 uh, from Robert E. Lee, dated July 10th, 1863, mm -hmm. and it states the brigade of Brigadier General Iverson of Rhodes Division is temporarily attached to that of Brigadier General Ramser, same right. division. The whole to be under the command of the latter officer. Brigadier General Iverson will, until further orders, remain on duty as Provost Marshal at Williamsport. Right. The portion of his brigade now at that place will proceed as soon as practicable. Hey, hey, practicable, there's that phrase again. To rejoin its division. Yeah. So we see this happening now. And, you know, we wonder, why does he do this? I think there's a couple reasons. One, even though he doesn't perform well, he's known as a law and order kind Bingo. of guy. Exactly. I, you know, so he's maybe not a bad appointment to be the Provo Marshal here. I mean, <laughs> he might not be able to command these guys in battle, but he can make sure they're not straggling. Solves a lot of problems. Gets him away from his brigade. Gets the brigade away from him. You know, Lee, it's not like Lee has a wealth of people to choose from. Hey, I got this disciplinarian Iverson. Put him, put him to use. Now, Ram Zur you know, who we've noted as a thorn in the side, does note in a private letter that, again, Iverson was quote-unquote relieved for a misconduct at Gettysburg. But he's not away from the Army. He's still doing something. But on July 13th, at Williamsport, a Confederate surgeon assigned there complained that this morning Iverson, quote, was gone. 
He had left during the night, and there was no one left in Williamsport except the wounded who could not be removed, a few stragglers from the army, and myself. So again, you know, he's kind of just kind of doing his own thing. Hey, man, I'm going to leave. In fact, he doesn't even tell him I'm leaving, but I'm going to go do my own thing. You guys stay behind. And I think what's interesting is we look three days after that, Iverson appears again on Lee's radar. And Lee is going to write in Special Orders 175, and this was dictated to Walter Taylor, Brigadier General Alfred Iverson, Provisional Army, Confederate States, is relieved from duty with this army. There you go. And will report to the Adjutant Inspector General, Confederate States Army, Richmond, Virginia, for orders by order of General Lee. Now, we should note that that order was revoked on the 19th of July. Because what we will now see in Special Orders 178, if you're keeping track of all the Special Orders in Lee's Army at home, Special Orders 175 from these headquarters is hereby revoked, and Brigadier General Alfred Iverson will report to Lieutenant General Richard S. Ewell, commanding 2nd Corps, for assignment to the temporary command of Nichols Brigade, Johnston's division, by command of Robert E. Lee. And so let's pause there for a minute. Let's let that soak in with people. Because again, what you always hear is Iverson, the fool and the buffoon, was relieved of command, you know, and sent away from the army, which was General Lee's favorite pet topic. Yet here he is again, a couple of days later, getting a command. Now, there's no direct evidence on why he came back, but Ewell staffer Campbell Brown did believe that Iverson's powerful friends, possibly including his dad, had stepped in to save him. Brown wrote afterwards that Iverson was, quote, relieved at once, sent back to await trial, but being forwarded to Richmond, got off scot-free. Now, again, I want to just point out that's Brown writing afterwards. That wouldn't necessarily meet the tenor of the contemporary special order that Lee wrote. But again, you do sort of have this influence that A, Iverson was sent off because he was bad, and somebody saved his neck again. Who knows? And what we're going to see, too, around this time, we begin to see calls from home for Alfred Iverson. In command of the District of Georgia was Major General Howell Cobb, a major political powerhouse, the Cobb family in Georgia. Certainly, they would have known the Iverson family pretty well. And what we're going to actually see is that Howell Cobb, on September 9th, 1863, takes command of the District of Georgia, and he puts in a request to Jefferson Davis for the services of fellow Georgian Alfred Iverson to command Georgia Cavalry. On October 5th, Robert E. Lee replies to the request, I wrote to you that I could spare General Iverson for the cavalry in Georgia. He is the only man I can think of for the situation. Also around this time, in September of 1863, there is another reason for the transfer. And Lee wrote to Secretary of War James Seddon in September of 63 about the restructuring of his brigades after Gettysburg. He's going to report that the attempt has been as far as possible to have all the regiments from the same state brigaded together under officers from their own states. Hey, it's about time. General Iverson of Georgia has been transferred from the North Carolina Brigade, which he commanded to a Louisiana Brigade, and his place filled by the promotion of a North Carolinian. About time. 
You will perceive from this statement how far I have succeeded in arranging the brigades from North Carolina in conformity to the rules spoken of above. Iverson is then transferred officially on October 6th with orders to move to Atlanta, Georgia to report to Major General Cobb. So this is the end of Iverson uh, in the Army of Northern Virginia. Iverson's men will be commanded for the rest of the war under a North Carolinian, Robert Johnston, and all seems well for the brigade now, what's left of them. But for Iverson, his story does not end. And what we see is that he eventually becomes a brigade commander under Joseph Wheeler in the Army of Tennessee. And cavalry. And cavalry. Back what he's used to. Exactly. I was going to say that. Back to what he started at. So it might seem weird to see him doing cavalry, but remember what he did before the Civil War, which you all heard in part one. So what we see is that probably his finest moment is in July of 1864, the Battle of Sunshine Church. Maybe the most happy name of a battle in the Civil War. You know, Sunshine Church. That sounds really nice. Uh, This is a location southeast of Atlanta uh, where his cavalry is going to defeat and capture a Union force under the command of George Stoneman, an old friend from his first U.S. Cav days. Of course, after this, you know, after the fall of Atlanta, Iverson and his men are going to try to slow William Sherman's advance as best they can, almost operating in almost a guerrilla-style warfare at times, you know, just sort of biting and nipping at them as best they can. At the war's end, he refused to sign an oath of Mm -hmm. allegiance and actually kind of disappeared for a few years, remaining, for all intents and purposes, an unreconstructed rebel to his dying day. Now, we should note that even though Sunshine Church is a, I think, a good point on his record— there was some murmurs of his performance. Yeah, there. I've been I've been waiting to put that frown on the happy face of Sunshine Church. So once again, his men performed well. He scored a victory, but he was sort of credited with leading from the rear on that one. Uh, and one of the well, colonel is is generally credited with the victory. One private said Iverson was sick and not on duty during the attack. So again, I'm not sure Sunshine Church is so happy, but. You know, nevertheless, hey, it's a victory for 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 him and his men. Now, we should look at what does Iverson do after the war? He's eventually going to move to Kissimmee, Florida, where he grows oranges until he is ruined financially by the freeze of 1895. He, he, he does also, though, too, though, I just want to mention, you meant speaking of freeze, he obtains a patent for a household invention. Does anybody know what patent Iverson holds? And I'll pause for a minute to see if anybody comes up with this. He will make a patent for a household ice cream making machine. So we have Iverson the poet, you know, to the sort of coward at Gettysburg, to making ice cream. Isn't and that awesome? citrus entrepreneur. Exactly, exactly. So after he is ruined financially in 1895, he's eventually going to move to Atlanta, Georgia, where he dies on March 31st, 1911. And he is buried today in Oakland Cemetery in Atlanta, actually next to John Gordon. Oh, okay. So we have Gordon and Iverson in the same cemetery. It's interesting, though, that after the war, when Iverson was asked, what did you do during the war? You know, despite serving in Gaines's Mill, South Mountain, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, he will note his service in the war, he would say, in Georgia with Joe Wheeler. Yeah. He never mentioned his Army of Northern Virginia exactly. days. I think that's a period that he just kind of lets go of. Yep. 
And and again, you know, you might want to sort of think of a sad, broken, embittered man. But as we mentioned earlier, he does correspond with DHL about some of the various campaigns and other things. But ultimately, he never got his ice cream making fortune. So sad for Iverson. So, you know, to, to put a bow on this, to put a bow on this, you know, Iverson's assault at Gettysburg. First of all, I love taking tours up and down Oak Ridge. It's one of my favorite parts of the field. I don't get a chance to do it enough, you know, to really go into detail like we've done on the uh, the past two topics. Yes, again, I would say it's a mini Pickett's charge, but no, there's no glory. It's never been remembered anywhere near as favorably as, as Pickett's charge uh, has. Really, the men of Iverson's command, for lack of a better word, died for nothing on the afternoon of July 1st. Ultimately, the Union forces were not even able to hold Oak Ridge, so you can argue that some of them died for nothing. But in Iverson's case, the men died for nothing. It's an attack that has rightly been remembered as a disaster. And although I like these hard luck cases, I like studying Dan Sickles, I like studying George Custer, I will admit I came away from this with a little bit more favorable impression of Iverson, just because if you start with the needle so far over that he's a drunk hiding behind a log, anything you sort of learn is going to be an improvement on that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know that you can damn somebody for being incompetent. Uh, he doesn't really seem like the kind of guy I would like to hang out with. So I still don't like Alfred Iverson, but damn it, I think I understand him better. And isn't that what this is all about yeah and one of the goals of our show has been to try to humanize these individuals that we know of here at gettysburg too often they're just kind of simple characters that play a role in the story and mm -hmm. and they're, they're more than that i think and i think in iverson's case as i said before he's defined by about an hour and a half period in his life but as as is almost anybody who fights yeah. at gettysburg that's just what they get you know that's what they get and so I think we see that. And of course, afterwards, the men that were once under his command, it's very interesting. If you look at Clark's regiments, the only troops that really go into a lot of detail about what they did at Gettysburg is the 12th North Carolina, the 5th, the 20th, the 23rd. It's almost we were there and they then kind of focus yeah. more on Hagerstown. It's almost one of the things we just don't even want to talk about it, which is you think about how after the war, how many Confederate units, even in defeat, right. talk about what they did. Well, it was A, a lot more horrific for yeah. them, and B, you don't even know how many of them were still surviving to, to write it, you know, right. so you don't know. So, you know, we, we see that. So as we kind of close the episode, we do have a few questions that we did not address in, in the episode. <laughs> So two, two parts, almost four hours of content, and we still have unanswered questions. How hey, did this happen? Hey, that's why we're the best in the <laughs> business. We leave no stone unturned. The first question is from superfan Brandon, who asks, did people back home know that he hid by a tree during <laughs> the most important assignment of his life? Did that reputation follow him? Certainly the veterans that he had under him. Never let people forget right. Iverson right. and his reputation. Right. Uh, I would even argue that the former men under his command almost went out of their way to vilify Iverson. Mm -hmm. Any chance they get to take a shot at Iverson, they will. So 
you'll see Iverson also not really being involved heavily in the veteran movement, even though he dies in 1911. You don't see him showing up at, at you know, conventions and, yep. and reunions. I think partly because he is kind of a persona non grata in, in some respects. And certainly, you know, his name is not well received in North Carolina Civil War circles, even to this day. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this stuff gets in the newspapers. I mean, we read... We re- I read an account earlier from, I think it was February of 64 from the Richmond Press. So obviously these very unflattering accounts are circulated in the, uh, in the Southern Press almost immediately. And you know, there's an account of, there's an account of the men he, while they're still here at Gettysburg kind of rallying up. Uh, maybe it was at the Hankey farm, but in one of the farms where kind of the, the wounded are being treated and, and one of the wounded colonels getting on the porch of the farm and saying, you know, as God is my witness, we will never serve under that imbecile Iverson again. So yeah, to, 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 to paraphrase, I mean, the word got around on this guy pretty quickly, and again, did it dog him for the rest of his life? Hell, it's 2020, and it's still dogging him. Yeah. So it's it's all stuff that hasn't gone away. And it's not even a nuanced view of him. It's the absolute worst allegations right. of him that are remembered. He's a drunk coward hiding behind a law. Dare I say, you know, it's the Dan Sickles version of people. And by the way, our first installment of the Dan Sickles report in season three. But it's like, you know, Dan Sickles, people have this image of this cowardly, drunken guy twirling his mustache and just scheming for ways to destroy the entire army of the Potomac. It's kind of like that on a Confederate scale. It's just the worst version possible of these guys. Unfortunately, history is usually more complicated than that, and I'm glad it is. So our next question comes from superfan Robert, who asked, did he have a nervous breakdown? And if so, how did he recover? Now, we kind of touched on this a little bit. You know, if you read the notes of Coddington, Coddington, which I would actually recommend everyone do. In some cases, what he has in his notes is better than some of the stuff right, he actually has in right. the book. The good stuff's actually in the notes. It is. Uh, so I would highly recommend reading those. But, you know, Coddington makes the point that um, he actually likens it to combat fatigue or shell shock or PTSD. You know, I think there's a number of things at play. I think we have to look back at his wife's death, mm-hmm. which by all accounts had a major impact on him. And we didn't really touch on this in right. part one. We kind of missed this. But think about when he's back in Carlisle. This is the place where he married his wife, the love of his life that he loses tragically. He's not probably having good memories. Right, right. And does that set him up to be maybe more psychologically fragile? And then he sees what happens to his brigade and knowing that not only is his brigade destroyed, but probably his reputation. Yep, yep. Uh, That's a lot for one person to function. I think what we can see is that, yes, the human mind is very resilient at times. So, you know, we do talk about he does kind of bounce back and he's going to be made provo marshal, but then... You know, three days later, he's out of the scene. He's gone. Yeah. You know, yeah. who's to say that he just doesn't have his good days and his bad days? And I think all of that, there's no way he can continue to serve in the Army of Northern Virginia. Right. The best thing for him to do is send him back home, and maybe a change of scenery will be good for him. You know, this is not Stonewall Jackson at the Seven Days. Oh, my God, Jackson's been doing so much. Now he's tired. I mean, let's not, let's not confuse that scenario because, you know, really Iverson hasn't done a whole lot. In the immediate lead up to um, to Gettysburg, um, I will subscribe to the idea of being in Carlisle probably does bring back unhappy memories. I've seen other instances of that with other guys I study like Marcus Reno 
and things like that. So I, I, so I will subscribe to that. I will subscribe to the potential for shell shock, but I think, yeah, I think it's just, it's just a bad situation for everybody involved. He's not the best. He's in a tough situation. He watches his guys get shot to hell on July 1st. So I'm going to disagree with Coddington on this one. I don't think it's a nervous breakdown. You might convince me that it's some form of, of shell shock, but I think it's just everybody at this point saying, how the hell do we get out of this, this bad situation? Because again, you know, he seems to be at least functioning on the retreat. I'm not saying he's competent on the retreat. I'm not even saying he's good on the retreat, but he's at least functioning. And I don't know. I don't see the guy getting sort of off of off, you know, out of his straight jacket by 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 July six. So I think I think in this case, when Coddington or anybody else's nervous breakdown, I think that's a little too much for me. Yeah, and of course, these conditions can manifest themselves in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we just don't know. I mean, and also we have to. I'm always very hesitant when we start to psychologically analyze historic figures. Well, you kind of just did. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I'll say that. I mean, you know, there's some things we can look at. Yeah. But to be able to give any definite diagnosis, and we, we can't. can't do it. We can't. They're not on the couch in here with a professional. Also, I'm a historian. Well, I'm not a I'm not a mental health expert. Well, the problem is too many biographies and historical documents really can only tell us what people did. Mm-hmm. They can't. And this is why you read a lot of doc, biographies and it's just like, well, General Iverson went here and then he went here and then he went there. And we're good at telling people what they did. It's a lot harder to tell people why they did stuff, because, again, the historical record just isn't as clear cut. You know, if they all if they all, all had psychological profiles and did ink blotting, this would be great. But they don't do it. But again, this is what you know, this is what we get. I'd say what we get paid to do. But since this is a free podcast, this is what we don't get paid to do is, you know, banter about this stuff. Yes, but we get paid in the knowledge we bring forth to our super The fans. love of the super fans is, is how I get paid. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I, and, and I'm being dead serious with that. It. it Makes me feel great when I see people say that, hey, you've helped me better understand this battle. Absolutely. You made me think about that. You know what? That That's is what why we do for. it. That's what you we're know, here for. We're getting I, moist right now. That's why we're here. I didn't go into the history field to get rich. No, you didn't. You know, and <laughs> so, you know, we're not we're not trying to sell gimmicks. We're not trying to sell other things. We're just trying to help you better understand this battle. Yes, and, and, and that's and, our payment. And, and hopefully help you enjoy history so that you will want to learn more about the battle. Absolutely. So what's the next question? So the last question, which I think is the perfect way to end this, okay. is from Superfan Josh, who is going to ask, Lost Cause ideology can really chew some people up. Okay. Does that poor performance disrupting Lee's plans play here at all with Iverson? The popular narrative about any major figure at Gettysburg isn't always correct. He actually notes Sickles. Okay. Does Iverson really deserve the beating he gets? Okay. I'm going to say, well, again, I'm going to say yes and no. You know, as we've said, I don't think he deserves the drunken coward hiding behind a log beating. In the big scheme of things, Iverson's quote-unquote defeat is not overly detrimental to the Army of Northern Virginia. 
uh, here at Gettysburg, as we'll hopefully talk about on future episodes. Ramser and company reforms. Baxter gets replaced by Paul. Union forces get driven off of Oak Ridge. So in the big scheme of things, um, you know, I would argue that this is really only a blip on the radar for Robert E. Lee in the North Army of Northern Virginia. I think it's more the, the historiography around, you know, Iverson's doomed brigade, unled, unwanted sort of thing. And I think the historiography around that, I think, plays very nicely into sort of this, you know, poor North Carolina. North Carolina is always getting overlooked, you know, kind of kind of historiography. So I think there's some of that, too. And, and so from that perspective, I would say, yeah, it does at least play a part. Now, I think a small part in the lost cause, but I think it does play a part. Yeah, and I think what we see in terms of the lost cause is these veterans of the war trying to come to grips with what the war was about right. and their experience right. in it. And I think you make a good point that in many ways, Iverson's brigade and their experience at Gettysburg, man, does that not sum up North Carolina and the Army of Northern Virginia? Poorly led, overlooked. And we bear the brunt of heavy casualties. Until you get to Newport Barracks. Until and then you, you give Newport them hell. Barracks. And then you give them hell. Then we give them hell. But, you know, what we see is, in the case of Iverson, I'm going to hold him accountable for the things that I think he deserves yes. to be held accountable right, for. Right, right. I do not think he puts in a great performance. Nope. I will also caveat that with the fact that he was not put in a good situation. Right. But he doesn't make it better. I will not hold him. I think the the drunkenness, the cowardice, I don't buy that right. necessarily. But I think certainly the damage was done ahead of time. So, and I think too, you know, the heavy losses in one brigade, this isn't the first time or the last time right. that one Confederate brigade is going to suffer heavy losses in a battle. Right. But what we do see is the cumulative effect. It's not just Iverson's brigade. It's Junius Daniels' brigade. Mm -hmm. It's Johnston Pettigrew's brigade. It's other brigades that are losing men that cannot be replaced. The Confederacy by 1863 cannot replace good quality battle-hardened veterans and leaders. Bleeding North Carolina of its finest, right? Yeah. Right? You know, I did a study of you know, the 1860 census, and I looked at, you know, the number of troops that North Carolina pulls based on their military age population. Yeah. North Carolina mobilizes 89% of its military-aged male population. That is unheard of in the United States today in a conflict. So, yeah, you know, North Carolina bears the brunt of this. And I think Gettysburg still, you know, we go back to that one quote that, you know, a Virginian does anything, it's the greatest thing ever. Uh, North Carolinians earned the distinction they got here at Gettysburg. There's no doubt about that. So sitting here at Gettys Gear listening to that rant, something just occurred to me. Are we forming our own new digital lost cause here? Because on this show, we give North, because of you, we give North Carolina a lot of play. We really haven't done a lot with Virginia or even Georgia or even New York. Or, you know, are we really sort of creating a new lost cause narrative here uh, that long after we're gone, these podcasts will live on and people will appreciate the role North Carolina played during the rebellion? Well, I am hoping that, if anything, I am helping to 
Set. Give context and set the <laughs> record straight in in a completely objective yes. and non biased way. Now, this is not filmed right now, but I do have a smirk on my face as I'm saying that, you know, because I I am biased when it comes to this. I am maybe not as objective as I can be, but I can't put the objective historian hat on. But no, I think it is for so long it's been a very Virginia centric view of the Army in Northern Virginia, and you know I think I would love to do a study on some Georgians. Study on South Carolinians. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of troops outside of the kind of the Virginia realm that I just don't think get the attention they deserve. Well, maybe when we do the wheat field, we start with Kershaw and we go from there. So, or Absolutely. Kershaw, if you prefer. So, as we put a bow in on the episode, I uh, want to tell you where you can find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. And you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. We do once again want to thank our friends at Gettys Gear for graciously hosting us. Um, I think this is kind of becoming the home field of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I think it is. Um, I so. think it is. And, and not only hosting us, but y'all should come down here and visit their store, uh, buy some stuff, thank them for supporting us, support them as a small business during these troubled times. Uh, you don't need to buy more stuff from Amazon during the holidays. Come down to Gettys Gear at 777 Baltimore Street uh, in the Gettysburg Village across from the Tour Center and uh, do a little of your holiday shopping at Gettys Gear. I know the good people there would have appreciate it. And even if you are kind of worried about heading out as things are kind of kicking up with the virus, you can always give them a call. You can right. always order online. Yep. So, yep. you know, there are ways to do that. So, and you know, also we do want to remind everybody before we go, if you want to help us out, please give us a review on the social media platform of your choice or the podcast platform of your choice that really helps us out. So before we leave, you know, we usually, as we end one episode, we kind of give you a sneak peek at what's coming next. So we can do that. Our next yeah. topic will be on the individual that I consider, outside of Dan Sickles, the most influential as it comes to the Gettysburg battlefield. And that, of course, is John Batchelder. So while we were on hiatus... John Batchelder mania swept the country. Uh, my publisher, Savis Beatty, chose to reprint the Batchelder papers. Many of our listeners became uh, infatuated with Batchelder based on the recommendations from, from the Battle of Gettysburg book podcast. And his Batchelder mania is sweeping the country. Thought it would be a good idea to kind of give you guys the backstory on who was John Batchelder, why he did what he did, and the influence he's had on the Battle of Gettysburg. So I'm going to call it John Batchelder, the man, the myth, the papers. And we think we're going to do that next. But but beyond that, we got some great ideas for season three. We're talking about doing some East Cavalry Field stuff. We're going to actually dive in and do some Lincoln stuff for the first time. We've been threatening forever to do a John Reynolds episode. We're going to kind of cross that off of the list. Uh, maybe get some of our Battlefield Guide friends back for another roundtable for a maybe one or two special guests even from the field of academia we've been talking to some folks there and maybe even a special watch along of ken burns gettysburg section who knows we've got a lot of good ideas you know it was funny when we started this we sat down one night and tried to write out 
ideas for shows, and I think we ended our, our number well over 50. Yeah, I think it was and, like around 50. And we keep, just keep getting more and more, and you guys also give us great ideas yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. So we've got a lot coming down the pike. Um, we, we're excited to do John Batchelder. I think he's a guy that a lot of folks know the name. But they well, don't they really do now, know yeah. why he's that important. Or they've got this big three-volume set now sitting on their shelves, and they're going to kind of be wondering, okay, what do I do with this? How do I use that? I got some ideas to give them some tips on, on how to work through that as well. Yeah, and I think we can go ahead and stake our claim. We started John Batchelder Mania. I think we can get. I think we can go ahead and take credit for this. Let's take credit. Ted Savis, are you listening? We, we can take credit for this. Battle of Gettysburg podcast informed the world. About the existence of John Batchelder. Yeah, we'll take credit for that. Why not? You're welcome, America. So with that, we want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, I am Licensed Battlefield Guide Eric Lindblade. And I'm Licensed Battlefield Guide Jim Hessler. This has been Iverson's Brigade at Gettysburg, and we'll be back with Batchelder Mania on the next episode of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. See you next time.